to ProCon. My name is Siddharth Satish, and today on the show, we have a junior from West Windsor Plainsboro High School North, Jonathan Solomon, who will be competing with me on the resolve that this house regrets that only naturalized citizens can become candidates for United States presidency. Hello, and thank you for joining me here, John. Hi, it's good to be here. Um, so before we get into the debate, John, why don't you tell us a brief 30-second summary about yourself, what your interests are, what you like to do outside of school, and stuff like that. All right, so uh, I'm a junior at High School North. Uh, I'm a model Congress officer, the vice president of my class council. So I'm really into that stuff, like government, law. I want to go into law. So, you know, I just uh, just want to support this podcast because I think it does a great thing in, like, you know, encouraging these types of discussions. Awesome. Thank you for being here with me, John. And without further ado, you all know me as Sid. I'm a sophomore, and I also compete in Model Congress. And today we're going to get into the debate. Our first debate and the first episode of the podcast, which focuses on the debate, is going to be today. And without further ado, let's get into it. I'm going to go over the structure really, really quickly so we have a general idea of what to expect inside of today's debate. So we start with four-minute opening statements on each side. I am the proposition. So I want to make sure that people who are not naturalized citizens can also become candidates for presidency. John, on the other hand, wants to make sure that only naturalized citizens are candidates for presidency. So I will begin with the four-minute opening statement, and then John will give his four-minute opening statement. Then we'll have one minute each to prepare our cross-examination points. And these cross-examination points are going to be questions that we ask the opposition to make sure that some of their points come off as weak. And we're going to get two minutes on each side for cross-examination. And after that, one-minute conclusion speeches. And after all of that is done, we'll take five to ten minutes to go over the debate, things that we liked about it, good points that each side made, and stuff like that. And then we'll conclude, and I'll introduce next week's topic and what we're going to be seeing next week from our debaters. Okay. So are you ready, John? Yes. Awesome. Sounds great. So I'm going to begin my opening statement that will last four minutes. In today's debate, it's important that we focus on three major aspects. First, the Alien and Sedition Acts and the impact that it had on the creation of this part of the Constitution. Second, the impact that this resolve will have on the allies that the United States can have. And third, I'm going to make sure that I refute the opposition's points before they even are brought up. But first, let's go into the Alien and Sedition Acts and take a step back in history. Now, this Alien and Sedition Act essentially said that you have to be a 14-year citizen of the United States to even get, uh, a 14-year resident of the United States to even to get citizenship. John Adams eventually took away this act to make sure that more people can come into the United States and become citizens because that is our entire goal. We want to make sure that immigrants can become members of the United States. They can contribute to our democracy. And many people call our country the melting pot of diversity for this specific reason. But what we see presently with only allowing naturalized citizens to even become people who represent this nation is that we're limiting the scope of our democracy. 
we're solely saying that people born here are entitled to the right to represent their country. But what about the people who moved when they were just two days old? Refugees who fled and have lived their whole lives in this country, who have contributed to our economy, to our prosperity. What does it mean for them? Is it because they weren't born here that they have no right to represent their country? That's the dangerous precedent that we're setting by keeping it so that only naturalized citizens can even become presidents of the United States. And on the topic of immigrants, that brings me to the second point about new allies with the United States. We see that presidents are able to use their personal influences and connections with other countries in order to make sure that people and certain groups are represented more than others. And what we see with President Trump and his allies with Russia and China is that he's able to funnel arms and give goods that the Congress doesn't want to these entities. And statistics clearly show that many of Trump's actions are clearly opposed by immigrants. But the fact is, these people can never stand up for themselves. And the opposition will claim, well, we have governors, we have people, and these people can vote for these governors. But ultimately, governors and these people don't share the same exact views. There's different opinions that people have. And presently, we're not allowing those opinions to be represented. Now, President Trump has essentially used his connections for a negative reason, but we can see, and it could potentially be so, that immigrants could have connections with other countries and use them in a positive way in order to build alliances in precarious situations like in the Middle East. In places where there's more human rights violations than ever, we need to make sure that we have a strong foothold in order to make sure that the United States doesn't get involved in the wrong side of the conflict and only immigrants can give this feeling of warmth to other countries. We see that many uh, terrorist groups use fear of the United States and the white man as reason to recruit more members into their clans and spur hatred against the United States. But if we were to have an immigrant, someone foreign represent us, someone who has been in the United States, gone through the education, gone through the civic process to represent us, we can make sure that our enemies warm up to us. Now, the opposition today is going to state that we're protecting national interests, but are we really... Because naturalized citizens have not done as much as immigrants have for our society. We see that immigrants build the foundation for which our, from which our democracy has grown. They are the ones who migrated westwards during the, term, during the time of manifest destiny. They are the ones who expanded our borders. They're not going to be the ones threatening our national security. You can use one or two examples of acts committed by a group of people as reason to hate them. And that's exactly why naturalized citizens should not be the only one who represent our country. We should allow people who have gotten their citizenship, who are over 35 years of age, to come and to sit in that role of presidency and to make sure that they can represent their part of the people who have never been represented before. We see that only white men have been represented, only Christian men have been represented Never have we seen a woman come into office. Never have we seen someone of some other religion come into office because of this clause. We prevent 
any sort of cultural diversification that America is essentially proud of. And that's why we ought to make sure that we rid this requirement. Thank you. Okay. Whenever you're ready, John, you can begin your opening statement. Before I start my argument, I want to explain that there are two ways to interpret the natural born citizen clause. The first is jus soli, or law of soil, meaning that being born within the United States qualifies someone as a natural born citizen. The second newer interpretation is called jus sanguinis, or law of blood, meaning that U.S. citizens can pass down natural born citizen status to their children, whether these children are born in the United States or not. The latter interpretation has been widely accepted in the modern political sphere. For example, there are many past presidential candidates like John McCain and Ted Cruz who were born outside of the United States, yet were allowed to run for president because their parents were citizens. For that reason, throughout the debate, I will be supporting the expansion of the law of soil interpretation to the law of blood interpretation. With that being said, allow me to begin. If we want a president that is capable of serving solely American interests, then it is imperative that we maintain the natural-born citizen clause of the Constitution, specifically the law of blood interpretation. The framers wrote the Natural Born Citizen Clause as a safeguard from foreign nobility. Naturally, they did not want the highest office in their land to be held by someone who did not put American interests at the forefront. Although nobility has, been, uh, although nobility has since faded from the developed world, the sentiment of the founders remains relevant. While the United States' sovereignty is no longer threatened by nobility, we know that there, are currently that we know that there currently exist powerful governments that actively seek to undermine our political system, namely Russia and China. Russia has meddled in our elections multiple times. The Guardian reports that China researched Russia's 2016 actions and may start to meddle in our elections themselves. I genuinely believe that if both countries could take the next step of meddling, that is, sending an actual presidential candidate to the U.S. to shake things up, then they would do so. However, there is one part of the Constitution that prevents them from effectively doing so, the Natural Born Citizen Clause. I would say that in order to be a candidate that, could, uh, that would serve Russian or Chinese interests, one would have to be raised in Russia or China. Because being raised in a country allows biases for that country to form. More on that later. But let's look at what it takes for a Russian spy to become a presidential candidate under the Natural Born Citizen Clause. One, they have to be born in the United States. Two, the parents, being fully aware of America's vast social and economic opportunities, have to move back to Russia or China. Three, the child has to have been raised in Russia or China as to form a bias for their country. And finally, four, that child, when they grow up, has to want to work with their respective government and be willing to run for president in another country. If the Natural Born Citizen Clause did not exist, then any Russian or Chinese agents could e easily shake up an election without the following steps that I listed. Our democracy would be at significant risk. For my next point, I'll be covering the nature of bias and why the birthright citizenship allows a presidency to act solely in U.S. allows a president to act solely in U.S. interests. Bias has a history of uh, clouding American executive decisions. For example, during World War II, a committee of American military generals, officers, and scientists were deciding between which of the Japanese cities to bomb. This was before they decided on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. One of the considered cities was Kyoto, until Secretary of War Henry Stimson persuaded Harry Truman not to bomb it. Stimson has vid had visited Tokyo multiple times and had his honeymoon there, so his bias in favor of Kyoto kept him from acting against it, and Nagasaki got bombed instead. That story quite obviously shows that people who make decisions in favor of what they are biased for uh, the story quite obviously shows that people make decisions in favor of what they are biased for. So it is best for a leader to be biased in favor of the United States. In order for a child to be instilled with a bias in favor of the United States, they need to be raised with U.S. sentiment. This requires at least one source. A child can be born and raised in the United States where they can learn to favor it, 
or they can be born to an American citizen who can teach them American values and interests. The law of blood interpretation guarantees that children, even when born in other countries, have a source of American sentiment. That is, at least one person who, uh, who is a U.S. citizen. Whether raised in the U.S. or raised abroad, the Natural Born Citizen Clause guarantees that whether through American parents or American schools, future presidents have a source of American sentiment that they can draw a bias from. This bias makes them more likely to make decisions solely in U.S. interests. If there are no natural born citizen clause, then there will be no way to guarantee that a potential president acts with only American interests in mind. If someone was born and raised in another country, then how can it be expected not to act in that country's interests? More importantly, if someone were to be born and raised in a superpower, like Russia or China, then how could, be they, then how could they be expected uh, not to act in that country's interests, which are, un, uh, which are to undermine United States elections? The natural born citizen clause is the hidden safeguard of our democracy. It protects us from foreign superpowers by preventing them from shaking up our elections with their own candidates. It also ensures that anyone who runs for office is likely to make decisions without bias in favor of other countries. The founders made the natural born citizen clause as a way to make sure that English nobles couldn't become presidents. This clause, however, has gone on to protect us from so much more. I yield my time. Thank you, John. Um, so now we'll take close to one minute um, to just take in what the opposition speakers have said and form some questions that will lead us into our cross-examination period. So we both will have one minute time, and what will happen is I'll take my first one minute, and then John can prepare during this time as well. Um, and then I'll ask questions to John. John will get then get one minute to form our uh, questions based on my responses to his questions and my speech. And then he will ask me questions as well. And then we'll move from there into our closing statements. So my one minute starts now. So John has gotten the time, and so have I, to prepare some questions. He's going to begin asking me a two-minute round of questioning. So whenever you're ready, John, we'll begin the timer. All right. Would you agree that people raised in America, receiving education from American teachers and being surrounded by Americans, are more likely to favor America because of childhood conditioning? Not necessarily, because let's think about it this way. People who are born in foreign countries but come to the United States at a very young age and have parents who really are amorous towards the United States because of their relationships with this country as a sanctuary, they're going to get the same amount of education inside of our public school systems. They're going to have the same amount of respect for our country, and they're going to have the same amount of respect for our democracy. I don't think having an ancestor related to a revolutionary war hero is going to change anything. Okay, then let's switch gears. Uh, would you agree that certain people may have pride for the place that they were born in just because they were born there? An example being an American who claims to be proud that they were born and raised in New York. Yes, of course, Americans who are born and raised in New York and certain parts, they do like where they're from. We see that, uh, the sense of sectionalism, right, where you, you like the place that you're born in, you think that you're special because of where you're born in, that's definitely going to be there. People will love their home country, but will also make sure that the country that has given them the love that they deserve is also respected. So that's why immigrants who are, are 
born maybe in Syria, but come to the United States, they still have respect for their country and for the people suffering there. But they have love for our country and want to make sure that they can give back to a country who's given so much to them. If you admit that someone uh, can have pride for where they're from, then uh, do you also admit that one's birthplace can influence maybe their bias uh, for that specific country? So if they, were born in the, if they were born in the U.S., even if they immigrate to another country, they would still have an affinity towards the U.S. because that is their birthplace. Um, not necessarily. What, 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 your, uh, what I would reference is the mere exposure effect inside of psychology that says the more familiarity that you have in, the, in some place, the more likely you're going to recognize it, the more likely you're going to associate it, uh, uh, associate with, uh, it with. And that's what is going to happen. If you are born in the United States and you go to, let's say, Germany, the education system is still great there. Everything is still good there. But you're more likely to say that you're a German national and that you like Germany as a country than the United States because most often you're not coming back to that country. You're no, you have little to no connection with it. And that's why you're going to have a greater bond with this uh, with the country that you're living in. Uh, so you would say that there is there is no bond between somebody uh, who may have been born in a place, but they moved to the other place, uh, but they might move to another country. I mean, there's some there's a very little bond, and I think this is very relative to when they move, um, and those circumstances that cause them to move as well. And I think candidates are going to be quite. Um, quite open in their uh, explanation to the public on when they moved, why they moved, because this does contribute to their campaign goals and ultimately it does look on that, good on them if they moved in extenuating circumstances. So they're going to be open about their history. But is there a bond, yes or no? Uh, a bond, most likely not. And it's, um, the, the thing is, it differs on a case-by-case -case basis. Most likely. Uh, uh, yes, most likely not. That's because it differs on a case-by-case -case basis. And I think our American public can decide for themselves if something's good or bad. I reserve my time. Yes. Awesome. Thank you, John. Um, now, I'll be taking my break. Uh, I'll take one minute to form up a few questions that I'm going to be asking to John. that white men who are born or any sort of people who are born in the United States are going to be biased to this country regardless of where they're brought up from. Um, how, how do you make that claim? Is there any psychological evidence that will back it up or any statistics that back up your claim? Uh, well, again, we do see like throughout culture, uh, there is a lot of national pride uh, based on like where you are born, you know, where you were raised. So for example, somebody saying they were born and raised in New York, that is a common phrase. Uh, we hear that like we hear that repeatedly, that people have pride based on uh, where they were raised, where they were born. Uh, and I believe that that, that, that makes its way into um, that makes a way that makes its way into democracy. And when deciding when some uh, when deciding somebody for president, I do believe that you have to uh, you have to have somebody who is, you know, more likely to have the US interests in mind. And that comes with um, a love in the U.S., and that love can be inhibited by uh, being born in the U.S. and raised. Um, so, 
if someone doesn't love as uh, the U.S. as much and says, I'm from Germany, I'm from Sweden, et cetera, et cetera, why would they even run for president in the first place? Uh, well, let's not, look at, um, let's not look at Sweden or Germany. Uh, let's look at countries like China or Russia. Uh, there are very clear reasons why somebody um, born in Russia or born in China may want to come to the U.S. Uh, to run for president. Uh, I'm not saying that the average citizen would, but certainly um, a spy, maybe uh, somebody who wants to undermine um, the election, uh, uh, the U.S. elections, because we do have proof that both, uh, you know, both countries like are seeking to or want to, or or have like uh, wanted to intervene into our elections. Uh, we have the proof. Uh, I do think that they would take the next step uh, and do that uh, if they could. But the natural born citizen clause, they uh, could. you know. Well, the, the whole thing is on hypothesis. And on that note, I want to ask you that you mentioned the argument that only American parents can give someone this sense of uh, American pride. And why do you think that when people from Syria come to the United States, from displaced countries, come to the United States and still have equal love for a country that gave them a sense of sanctuary and will harbor equal amount of emotion for it? Uh, well, when you take somebody who came from another country to America, uh, and you take somebody who was born in, who was born and raised in America, uh, you're going to see uh, because you know in the previous questioning session, uh, you uh, you admitted that there was like some that that there might be uh, some sort of connection between birth and uh, between birthplace and you know love for a country. We're going to see that there's going to be slightly more love for the side of the um, person that was born and raised in America. Uh, so, to um, because the um, because because the position of president is the foreign affairs um, position, we do need somebody who uh, who loves the country and who is like very um, uh, who is very willing to serve the country and serve its interests only. So, our immigrants don't love our country. Uh, well, they can love the country, uh, but I'm just saying that there is more of a likelihood uh, that someone born in the U.S. and has a connection to it uh, would be more loyal to the country and more willing to serve it. Okay. Uh, I reserve my time. Thank you so much, John. Thank and, you. And um, so this brings us to the end of our cross-examination period. I will move into my one-minute closing statement, and then we'll have John do his one-minute closing statement as well. And then that will be the official conclusion of our first-ever debate here on ProCon. In today's debate, we analyzed this whole topic of nationalism and the sense that people only born here are going to have pride for the United States. And that's what the opposition based much of their argument on, the law of soil and law of blood argument, the fact that spies could enter the United States um, just because they were born here and raised in a different country, they would be more amorous and more faithful to that country. And that's what the major opposition argument was. But the fact is, everything here is a hypothetical. The fact is that people who are born in foreign countries, now they can come into the United States, but the fact is they're not going to get elected because they have no experience with the United States government. And they have no experience with our civic education system our, uh, and uh, no introduction to the system that we have presently. And much of, the, uh, much of the times, intervening in our elections is going to be one way that they can get, uh, garner a bad name for our country. And the sitting president can take severe action against that. Our FBI and our systems that we have are the strongest 
amongst the world. We have one of the best defense systems, one of the best investigational systems that can sniff out everything from these candidates. And if there's even a hint of confusion, we can make sure that there's a lot of bureaucratic measures taken in order to make sure that this person can't even apply for presidency, or even if he does, is essentially not allowed to continue this campaign because of previous infractions and previous alliances with foreign countries. But we need to allow those who are truly dedicated to America the opportunity to serve her. Thank you. And that's all the time I have, and I reserve that. John, whenever, whenever you're ready, please uh, feel free to start your one-minute closing statement. All right. It is quite obvious that the presidency is a foreign affairs position, and that is what the framers meant for it to be. Uh, the president is the commander of our military, and they uh, meet with our foreign leaders. Now, uh, the the uh, the um, uh, the the opposite speaker in their speech uh, in their um, opening speech, they mentioned uh, that quote immigrant that immigrants have quote connections uh, with their other countries. Now, rather than viewing this as a strength, this should be viewed as a weakness. Uh, because we need a president who can be impartial and who can act in favor of American interests, uh, impartial to other nations and solely um, being loyal to us. Uh, so when when we say that immigrants have connections with their other countries, uh, this mean this simply means favoritism. This means that uh, th this means that immigrants are more likely uh, to act in ways that favor their other countries or that may not harm their other countries. Uh, now. On the power of our um, our U.S. intelligence, we uh, this uh, the meddling of the the meddling that was ha that happened in the twenty eighteen election uh, has proven that the FBI couldn't crack meddling until it was too late. So I don't necessarily have much um, belief in it that it would be able to uh, crack a that would be that would be able to crack um, a spy from China or Russia coming in to directly meddle with our elections. Uh, so given that, and given the um, given the fact that the presidency is a foreign affairs position. Uh, it is simply better that we have somebody who was born in the United States, raised in the United States, uh, knows U.S. sentiment, and has an affinity to the uh, has an affinity to the United States because they were born there. Uh, that can lead our country into impartial foreign affairs that act solely with U.S. interests and not with um, other biases in mind. Thank you. Awesome. So that concludes our first debate here on Procon. Thank you so much, John, for joining me here today. Um, we're just going to take five minutes and we'll have a small chat about what we truly feel about the topic because we were both confined to some sides. I think, John, um, maybe you should start because you're in negation. And I, uh, were, were you really sh uh, like convinced that um, you know, only naturalized citizens should be president? Yeah, uh, I just want to make it very, very clear. Uh, everything I said, I don't believe in at all. Uh, so I am, you know, I am not in favor of the natural born citizen clause. I do think that citizens, you know, uh, if they, you know, if they really do love the country, if they want to become the president, they should be able to do so. The 14th Amendment supports, you know, uh, the equal protection of all people under the law. So, you know, these citizens, I mean, these citizens, uh, because they came to the U.S., you know, because they have their own story of like immigrating over here, they should have that protection. You know, they should have that um, equal right to, you know go and run for president if they want to. Yeah, uh, I mean, I feel the same way. I was actually given the easier side on today's debate, so there wasn't much to uh, prove for me 
on my end because I think it was a very moral argument that I presented and yours was very logos and like logical and I really like that so I think that's something that I personally will use as like a grow factor from today's debate what about you what do you think you would use as a grow factor what do you think you did not like hmm, let's see I want to see I mean I feel like I could have been a little bit more pointed in the questioning and my closing uh, could have like had a little bit more flow to it, you know, a little bit more of a logical structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt like my opening, it was, I felt it was generally successful, but my arguments could have been more sound. Uh, they were probably rife with logical fallacies. So just like tightening the opening, you know, and making it like even more logos than it was uh, would make it more sound and, you know, make me look like a strong debater, I feel. Yeah, definitely. And like, uh, I mean, we both had things to work on and it was an awesome, awesome debate today. Um, thank you so much for joining me here today, John. And Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Uh, anytime. And I just want to preface this uh, and close this today by saying that um, we were having, uh, we were planning on having another debater present here today, but she was down with an illness, so she couldn't come. Um, that's why I was debating against John today. But from next week onwards, you will have two different debaters on the on the show, and it's just not going to be only me uh, doing this whole debating thing because we do want very very starkly different perspectives coming, two different speaking styles, inflection styles coming into the show. But that's what we have for this week. I hope you really liked this week's first episode, and next week we're going to be debating that. This house regrets the narrative of American exceptionalism. Ooh, I'm excited for that one. Yes. That's going to be an awesome debate next week. We're going to have a a group of two people come in next week and debate this. And until then, keep, keep debating, keep being happy, and make sure to tune in next week for the final episode of this month for ProCon. Thank you so much. And tuning out, Zid Satish.